Well, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, our goal remains to see Jesus as He really is. It's really kind of a simple approach to Scripture. We, we just want to see Jesus. We want to see what He is really like. And so we're looking at uh, these different stories and teachings of Jesus. And the question we have to ask is, why are they there and why are they there in this way? Because when, when gospel writers put gospels together, right, when they, they, they could have written so many more things and they could have arranged their material in so many different ways. So why is Mark doing this specifically? And I think the, the answer is that he puts it together, the stories, teaching side by side in this way, in this order, so that we can see Jesus with clarity and power. And so details are important. Sequence of these events is important. The way he breaks up a story and introduces something else is important. Mark is very careful and I would say masterful in the way he arranges his material to let us see Jesus as he really is. So look at our passage this morning. We have three miracles here. We have two healings. You have the healing of the deaf person in the, at the end of Mark 7. And then, of course, you have the healing of the blind person at Bethsaida, verses 22 through 26 of chapter 8. So you have those uh, two miracles of healings, and then you have the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. Now, if you've read the gospel, you know that we've already had many stories of healings, and Jesus had already fed the 5,000. So why is Mark given us more of seemingly the same, same stories. Why is he, why is he doing, recording more miracles for us? Is it just so we would know that Jesus can do miracles, Jesus can do cool stuff like that? I, I don't think so. I think there's purpose behind this. I think there's something that is special that's happening in these particular incidents as Jesus himself complements them with his teaching. So as we take a closer look at our passage this morning, we'll notice at least these two things. First, the feeding miracle exposes the disciples' lack of faith. So you see the miracle, and immediately after that, there are conversations. People are, are talking in the midst of it, and then after that. There's, uh, you can almost think of it as, as commentary. Jesus is, is, is explaining not just what happened, but why the disciples reacted the way they did. Why are the, the, the Pharisees have their own arguments with Jesus? It's, it's connected here. Uh, I mean, we see, for example, already in Mark 6, 52, that the disciples did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. So the previous miracle of the 5,000 produced unbelief already. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't really understand what was happening. Now there's a new miracle, and how are they responding? What are they doing? This is, this is important. Mark is, is showing us what's happening here, specifically the unbelief of the disciples, their hardness of heart, their spiritual blindness and deafness. Now, don't miss that Jesus is, is, is talking to people who have been with him. They've seen all these miracles. They've heard all his teachings. And yet, Mark still makes a point that they still have struggle, a struggle to believe. Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, which is the ultimate unbelief, the ultimate rejection of the kingdom of God. There's a warning here to them. 
He's saying, pay attention and don't give in to unbelief, but embrace what's the reality that, that you see happening around you. There's still hope for them and for us. Now, that's the first observation. There's unbelief that's exposed by the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. And the second observation is, is that the two healing miracles, uh, the healing of the deaf man and the healing of the blind man, are there to help us see that Jesus can restore our spiritual sight and hearing. Now, because it's in the context of the unbelief of the disciples, surely these miracles tell us something about how Jesus restores our sight and our hearing. Now, of course, there's details in each of these miracles that I think are very important, and both of these healings are very unusual. Now, in both cases, Jesus spits, and he touches the parts that need healing. And in the second case, healing is gradual, which is very unusual for Jesus. Usually he says something and it happens. Here, he doesn't just speak, he touches, he spits, and then one of the miracles is gradual. It happens in two phases here. So these details are important to understand. So we'll work through all this, but I, I want us to start with acknowledging that there is purpose in arranging this material in this way and including these particular details. It's not just, oh, here's another miracle. Jesus can do miracles. That, that's not what Mark is doing. He's choosing which miracles to tell us about and which teachings of Jesus to record and in, in what way to show us Jesus as he is. Jesus who recognizes our spiritual blindness and who comes to restore our spiritual sight. So if you're following an outline for, for this message, we only have two points, okay? Very simple. And I'm going to take most of my time on the first point. So don't panic as you get a little closer to the end and I'm still on point number one, okay? Two points. We're going to see the reality of spiritual blindness. And we're going to see the restoration of spiritual sight. The reality of spiritual blindness and the restoration of of spiritual sight. Now, if you were awake earlier in the service, and I don't know how time change affects you, I don't know if you're ready for a nap already or you're energized because you got an extra hour of sleep, it depends on when you, when you wake up. But if you were paying attention, uh, for our call to worship, we read from Isaiah 29. And in Isaiah 29, uh, there's a prophecy about this coming of the messianic age, coming of the kingdom, coming of the king, the divine king who will do things differently, will establish a different kind of rule. And it's interesting that Isaiah predicts this kingdom as being marked by blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, lame people leaping, mute people singing, poor people being restored and provided for, and the glory of the Lord spreading among Israelites and Gentiles. Now, there are many other passages like that, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, lots of prophecies that all basically say the same thing. When, when the Messiah comes, you will know that, he, that he's here by seeing these things, by seeing blind people receiving sight, deaf people receiving hearing, uh, the gospel being preached to poor people that are typically excluded from society, and now they're going to be drawn into the kingdom by seeing the Gentiles and the Jews together seeing the glory of the Lord. These are the signs of the kingdom coming. And so when John the Baptist in Matthew 11 is trying to figure out who Jesus is, he's got this question, 
Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or are we still supposed to wait for someone else? That's his question. So he sends his messenger, and the messengers come to Jesus and ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And this is how Jesus responds to them. I, I think this is, this is incredibly important that Jesus doesn't say, I am the Messiah. He doesn't say, yes, I'm the king. You're right. The waiting is over. That's not what he says. Listen to what he says. Matthew 11, 4 and following. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's Jesus' answer. So somebody asked him a direct question, right? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, just see what's happening. Look around and see what's happening. Blind people are receiving sight. The poor people are, are included. The dead are raised, right? And he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by this authority, but actually bows their knee to me as their king. Because you see that people who saw that, who saw the signs of the Messianic age, some of them rejected it and they were offended by Jesus' authority. They rejected the rule of Jesus. They said, that's not my king. And they tried to rationalize all these signs away. And yet others said, this is the king. This is the kingdom coming and I will bow my knee to his authority. Now, that's the background of the prophecies. And remember, people in Scripture, they've read the Old Testament. They've memorized large portions of it. They understand exactly what's supposed to happen. And so in our passage, Mark shows us Jesus traveling to Gentile regions, Tyre and Sidon and Decapolis. These are Gentile regions. These are pagans living there. He's preaching the gospel there. He's healing people there. The blind see, the deaf hear. He feeds 4,000 poor people. These are clear signs of the Messianic kingdom. What Jesus is doing here, and the way Mark records it, tells us this is the king. The kingdom of God is coming. Mark is, all Mark is doing is he's saying, look around. Look around and notice what's happening around you. Doesn't it sound like what Isaiah told us? Isn't that what we're supposed to see when the king arrives? To clear signs of the messianic kingdom. The kingdom is being revealed by these actions and words of Jesus, and yet the kingdom is rejected. Now look at the Pharisees' response. This is verse, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisees come and they demand a sign from heaven as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, it's amazing. They've, they've seen all this, right? They've seen the signs. They've read the scriptures. They've heard Jesus talk. And now they go to Jesus and they say, give us a sign from heaven so we can be sure that you are the Messiah. And Jesus responds in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. They're asking for proof. And Jesus says, you don't need proof. You need faith. They're saying, just give us 
incontrovertible evidence. Give us something, a sign from heaven, a comet or whatever, something like that, that will convince us that you are the king and the kingdom has come. And Jesus says, no. (laughs) He says, you've seen the signs. You don't need more evidence. You don't need more information. You don't need more data. You need your heart to be different so you can not be offended by me. Now, we know that the Pharisees were not sincere in asking for a sign. Because Mark told us that they came to argue and to test him. They didn't come sincerely asking, Jesus, help me, I believe, help my unbelief. That's not the situation here. They come and they say, give us a sign from heaven. All the while, they're coming to prove to Jesus why they shouldn't believe him. To tell Jesus, there's not enough evidence for me to follow you because we are offended by you. We do not accept your authority. Now, you would think that the disciples who saw even more signs, right, than the Pharisees, heard even more truth from Jesus than the Pharisees, you would think that the disciples would see things more clearly, that they would say, okay, here's, here are the signs, this is what Jesus said, he is the king, we will bow our knee before him, we will trust him, we will follow him, we will be part of his kingdom. And yet you see spiritual dullness and unbelief among the disciples too. When Jesus tells them he has compassion on the crowd who are hungry, Jesus says, if I let them go now, by the time they get home, some of them will faint. They're too weak to make the journey home to get food for themselves. So he's feeling compassion for them. It's exactly the same situation that happened with the 5,000, right? Just different peoples, Gentiles, Jews, but same situation. People are hungry. They're, they're about to faint. Jesus says, I'm worried about them. How did the disciples respond? Because this is an invitation. Jesus is, is, is asking a, a question. He's sharing his heart. He's saying, I'm feeling compassionate towards these people. Now, what is the right response? The disciples should have said, we're not worried right? We were there when you fed the 5,000. And how many loaves did you have then? You had five and you fed the 5,000 plus the women and children. We only have 4,000 here and we have seven loaves. This should work out great. Why didn't they respond in that way? Why didn't they respond in faith saying, Jesus, we saw you do that. I mean, I don't know how long ago, weeks, days before. I mean, this is not long ago. We saw you do that. We remember how you did it. Why are you worried? How did they respond? They respond in verse 4. The disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? (laughs) It's the people who were there when Jesus fed people in a desolate place by multiplying the loaves and the fishes, right? They were there. They were already rebuked for their unbelief then. Now exactly the same situation and exactly the same response. And by the way, the commentators who are reading this, they're saying uh, this couldn't have happened because why would they ask the same question again? Somebody said this is psychologically impossible. Well, we who, who know the human nature a little bit better than most psychologists know that, no, that unbelief is so persistent, we're going to ask the same stupid question of God again and again. And we've all done it. To me, that's proof that it really did happen because it rings very true to me. (laughs) But it's interesting that the people that should have known better, right? They were there. They knew Jesus. They walked with him. And yet, they don't believe. 
They don't get it. They are also spiritually blind. I mean, it's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the Herodians who are plotting to kill Jesus. It's not just some random people on the outside, on the fringes. No, these are people on the inside. These are people who Jesus is spending time with them. And by the way, they're going to get in the boat in a little bit here, and they're going to worry about bread again. They're going to say, we only have one, one loaf of bread. What is going to happen to us? Again, this is the, it's the same pattern. They respond in unbelief in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. It's not a problem of evidence. It's not a problem of we just need one more sign and then we'll really trust him. No. It's a problem of the heart, right? There's spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. And by the way, I'm, I'm using spiritual blindness only because it's easier to just use one term. But we see spiritual deafness. We, we can talk about spiritual unresponsiveness. We can talk about lack of spiritual hunger. It's all speaking about the same reality, lack of spiritual understanding. It's all the same reality. Given evidence, having been presented with the truth, we say we just don't get it. And we don't embrace it. We don't bow our knee to Jesus. We don't embrace his authority. In fact, we're a little bit offended by him. The, the disciples, the ones that were supposed to get it, simply don't understand spiritual realities. Their hearts are not, they're not open. Now, Jesus tells them about the leaven of the Pharisees, and they argue about the bread, right? Jesus tells them a spiritual truth. He says, be careful, because the Pharisees that just came, came up to me, and they were asking for a sign. They're not asking for a sign because they need more evidence. They're asking for a sign because they don't want to believe. And he says, be careful. Don't give in to that unbelief. Don't give in to that self-sufficiency. Don't give in to those rationalizations, he tells them. And they're saying, we just don't have enough bread, right? They're missing, completely missing the spiritual truth because their hearts are hard. Mark tells us they didn't get the loaves. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So even they are spiritually blind and deaf. Now look at what Jesus, how Jesus responds to their unbelief in verses 17 and following. This is speaking to the disciples. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Notice that they're able to recall the details just like that. No problem with memory, right? They remember numbers. They remember what they had, what Jesus did with it, how much was left over. It's not a problem of content. It's not a problem that they just don't remember. They just forgot how Jesus provided for them. And yet, in that boat with one loaf of bread, they're questioning his provision. And they're not believing him. And they're challenging his authority. I mean, it, it's amazing. And... That's a universal issue. If the disciples didn't get it, how am I going to get it? Right? How are you going to get it? The Pharisees didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. They were there. We see, but we don't see, right? 
You get the information, but you don't really perceive. We hear, but we don't hear. We remember, but we don't apply our past experiences to the present. Does that ring true to you? God did something in your life. A very similar situation occurs, right? And you remember what God did. Nothing wrong with your memory. You remember. But you fail to apply it to this, and you begin to question him again. And Jesus asks you, do you remember what I did? Remember how many loaves I had? Do you remember how much was left over? And you say, yes, I remember very clearly. <laughs> but I don't trust you now. Why? Why? Spiritual blindness. Spiritual deafness. Inability to spiritually connect the dots. Inability to apply something from the past to the present or to the future. Sometimes I hear someone say, if I lived in Jerusalem when Jesus was there, and if I saw his miracles, and if I heard him preach, and if I was there on the hillside when he gave food to the 5,000, when he multiplied the loaves, if I was there, I would surely believe. But now I just don't, I don't have enough evidence. What's the response to that? Look at all the people who were there. Very few believed. All these disciples, they were there at every miracle, right? Heard every sermon many times, by the way. Same sermon, probably heard many times. And they don't get it. And Jesus says, you have ears to hear, but you don't hear. You have eyes to see, but you don't, you don't see. You should understand, but you don't understand. It's not, it's not information that convinces us to believe in Jesus. It's not evidence that actually converts us. There has to be a change in our ability to see, in our ability to hear, in our ability to understand. There's a deeper issue here. If we reduce evangelism to, I just need to do better in explaining the gospel and then people will believe, I think we're missing the lesson of this chapter. Because the reason people don't believe, the reason you didn't believe until you did, if you're a Christian, is because you were spiritually blind. You were spiritually deaf. You were spiritually unresponsive. Now, I've heard new Christians describe their church experience prior to their conversion. Sometimes somebody would come to Christ and they would share their testimony and they would say, you know, I grew up in church. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, sometimes Tuesday night prayer meeting. You know, I read the Bible. We had family devotions at home. And they would say, and I never heard the gospel. To which I say, well, there is an outside chance, right? There is an outside chance that people were so deceitful around you that they have, they have held back the gospel from you, that, that your preacher deliberately excluded the gospel from his sermons, right? And that your parents, when they did family worship, they deliberately walked away from Jesus far away and just not mentioned his name just so you wouldn't be saved. It's possible. It's most likely that the gospel was preached and shared all the time, and you just didn't get it. Now, you heard it, right? Of course, you heard the information. You heard the Bible being presented in a way that, that you saw Jesus on its pages. You knew that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose for you. The information wasn't the problem. But your spiritual senses were not alive, you see. You couldn't really get it. You got the information, but your heart wasn't open. Your heart was hardened. So no matter how much you heard about Jesus, 
it's true to say that you didn't really hear about Jesus. Now let me show you something interesting. Twice Mark tells us that Jesus sighed. Or you can translate it as he groaned or even moaned. It's, a, it's kind of a grumbling, kind of a grumbling, frustrating moan. You know, he's frustrated with something. He's, he's reacting. There's a deep kind of emotional response. Now, first, in, in 734, we hear Jesus groaning when, he's, when he comes in contact with, with a deaf person, and, and he's groaning. He's sighing. Why is he doing that? He's sighing at seeing the brokenness of sin. It's a sigh of compassion. He sees somebody who's affected by by the dysfunction of sin, the brokenness of sin, and Jesus' reaction is, is grief. It's, uh, it's compassion. He's, he's looking at this person, and he, and he moans in, in, in sympathy, saying it, it, it shouldn't be this way. You should be able to hear. You should be able to speak clearly, and yet here we are. Look at what sin has done to my world. It's a groan of frustration at all the pain and, and suffering that sin has brought into the world. But in 8.12, Jesus groans again for a different reason. 8.12, Jesus groans, and it's a deeper groan. It's a deeper sigh, right? He groaned deeply in his spirit. Sighed deeply in his spirit. Here Jesus sighs in frustration at the unbelief of the Pharisees. He comes into the broken world, and he feels compassion for the broken sinners. He feels compassion for the sufferers, for those who have been affected by disease and, and by all this relational dysfunction and poverty, all these things. He sees that, right? And he groans. But then he comes to the Pharisees and he's realizing that he's not wanted in this world. And so he groans in frustration at the unbelief of the people. He comes into the world and people who are caught, caught up in sin, they argue with him and demand that he gives them more evidence that he can save them. And so Jesus groans as he sees the spiritual unresponsiveness of the people he came to rescue from sin. Now what Mark is showing us in this passage, and in fact what the whole Bible teaches so clearly is this, we are spiritually blind. We are spiritually deaf. We are without spiritual understanding. We naturally reject the gospel. Our natural reaction to the message of hope is to reject it and be offended at it. Unless our spiritual sight is restored, unless our spiritual understanding is unlocked, we cannot believe the gospel and embrace the gift of Jesus. Now, the kingdom of God has been revealed clearly, but we don't see it. We don't see it, and we reject it. Let me give you two illustrations of how this works. Jonathan Edwards uses this, this illustration. He says, we can know that honey is sweet. And that's important to know. Somebody can tell you, somebody can describe honey to you, describe its consistency, describes what it might taste like, what it looks like, right? But it's not enough just to know it. You can get the information about honey. You must taste it. You must taste it. You don't really get honey unless you taste it. 
Nobody can say, I love honey. I just love the way it looks. Love the way it smells. Have you ever tasted honey? No, but I just love honey. That's impossible, right? The same works in the spiritual realm. Nobody can say, well, I just, just, just love the gospel, right? And being unaffected by it. I love it so much I've rejected it. How can that be, right? Let me give you another illustration. Um, sin is like an avalanche. The whole world is rushing down the mountain without any power to change its course. Now, that's bad enough. Thinking about sin as this avalanche just, just kind of envelops the world. And now it's just everything is broken in the midst of it, right? That's bad enough. And that's why Jesus groaned the first time. He saw that. He saw a man being caught in the avalanche of sin. But it's even worse than that. The people who are caught in that avalanche are knocked out cold. We hit our heads on the rock, and we don't even know, we don't even comprehend that we are tumbling down the mountain. We're in terrible state, but we don't even know it. Knocked out, unconscious. That, that is actually a truer picture of the world in sin and people in sin than just somebody who is suffering under sin. Now, you are suffering under sin, but do you even know you are suffering? Do you even know that you need hope? Do you even know that you need Jesus? Now, this is what the Bible teaches. Sin is destroying our world, is destroying our souls, is destroying our bodies. And at the same time, sin has blinded us to the reality of our own sinfulness. So that when salvation is offered to us, we don't even see it. We don't even see the need for it. Unless it is revealed to us by grace, unless it also involves a transformation of the heart, the openness of spiritual senses, where we can see the gospel as it actually is and embrace it. There's something that needs to happen in us so then we can finally embrace the gospel, truly embrace it. Now, most of us here, because you're in church on a Sunday morning after you've changed your clocks, you've made it, big commitment, I understand. And so I'm assuming that most of us here, we've had that transformation happen to us. Jesus came into our lives and we didn't see and now we see. We were blind and as we sing, we were blind, now we see, we were lost, now we're found. Now, so we're looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. And I hope that what I'm saying actually makes sense to you because you've experienced it. You've tasted the honey, right? You've been awakened to your true state and you've run to Jesus and Jesus saved you and you see Jesus basically, basically as he is. There are three implications for us, for the church, from this doctrine of spiritual blindness. I'm going to be very quick. I'm just going to give you three. I'm not going to develop them. You can write them down and think about it. These are tremendous implications of this one doctrine. All three starts with age to help you remember and to help me remember what's coming up next, okay? Number one, humility. Humility. If you really believe that nobody comes to Jesus except when Jesus changes their heart, right? If you believe that everybody who's a Christian, they got there by God's grace because God reached out and found them and changed their heart and opened their eyes and opened their ears and now they understand because of what God did. 
If you really believe that, you will be humble. You will be humble because you're not different from any other blind or deaf person. The only difference is grace. The only difference is something happened to you because God did something for you. And so when you look at anyone else, let's say you're witnessing to somebody or you have a family member that is rejecting the gospel, guess what? You cannot feel superior to them. If you understand this, if you understand that we're all spiritually blind, we all start out as spiritually blind and deaf, that means when you're talking to a spiritually blind and deaf person, you are no different. I'm no different. How can I look down on someone and say, man, you just don't get it, but you know, I really get it, so I'm not better. The only reason I get it is because Jesus got me, right? And now I get it. But that's not because I figured it out. Not, it's not because I've put all the pieces together. I've connected all the dots. How do you not see it, right? There's no superiority here. So that's one, humility. Two is help. In both of these miracles of healing of the blind man and healing of the deaf man, we have other people who are bringing that person to Jesus. And they're begging Jesus to touch them. They're begging Jesus to touch them. They're not, they're not just asking for advice from Jesus. They're coming with such audacity. They're coming with such commitment of saying, here is our friend. He needs your help, and we will beg you to touch him. Which means that if you are praying for somebody who's spiritually blind, who doesn't see the reality of the gospel, your role is actually very important. You are helping you are coming uh, to help the person who cannot, they cannot help themselves. They are not going to find Jesus. You are helping them to find Jesus. You are bringing them to Jesus and you're begging Jesus. That's prayer language. Begging Jesus to touch them. To touch them. In evangelism, as much as in evangelism, we are bringing Jesus to people, right? So we have the message of Jesus we find the right way to explain it, to present it in the right way, that's evangelism. But evangelism is not complete unless you're also bringing that person to Jesus. You're not just bringing Jesus to the person. You also have to bring that person to Jesus. They are spiritually blind. They are unresponsive, and so you have to go get them and bring them in prayer to Jesus and beg Jesus to touch them. And finally, the last one is this is application, it's hope. It's humility, it's help, and it's hope. There's something about feeling helpless that is both, that could be very discouraging and could be very uplifting. If you know that there's nothing you can do, and it takes a while for us to get there, right? Many cycles often, when you think you've hit the bottom, you haven't yet, and there's another floor to drop. So we all go through it, but when you get to the point where you realize there's nothing I can do to help myself, I cannot open my eyes. There's, there's hope that appears. Because what if someone else can do something for me? What if finally I can, I can let go? What if finally I can stop deceiving myself and just, just go to Jesus and let him work in me? There's hopefulness. So when you're praying for somebody who's spiritually blind, please don't give up hope because they're exactly in the position 
in which Jesus can help them. They cannot help themselves, but this is exactly the kind of person that Jesus is compassionate towards and Jesus is looking to help. So those are uh, three application points. And finally, and I told you I just have a little bit of time left for my second point. Because if we leave now, even though I tried to lead you to hope, we, we, need, to, we need to do more with this hope than just say be hopeful. How does Jesus restore our spiritual sight? Because in the midst of this conversation about unbelief, we have two examples, right? You have the healing of the deaf man and the healing of the blind man. And they're flanking this, this conversation of, about spiritual blindness. So how does Jesus restore our spiritual senses? Two ways, by his touch and by his groaning. By his touch and by his groaning. The touch is a little bit easier to understand, I think. Now, people read this passage and, you know, half of us are grossed out, right? Because Jesus is spitting, he's, he's putting spit in people's ears, right? And his tongue... Why is he doing that? Because he doesn't usually do that. This is not how he typically heals people. Typically, it's a light touch, right? Sometimes Jesus doesn't even know who touched him. Somebody's just grabbing him. People are grabbing the, the tassels of his clothing, as we saw last week, right? It's usually pretty, pretty light. In this case, it's not. I mean, Jesus really gets in there, right? He's just spit and he's touching the right thing he's touching the ears of the deaf man he's touching the tongue of the mute person he's touching right he's doing that why i think it shows us how intimate and how close jesus has to get to us to heal us to restore our spiritual senses it shows us that jesus is willing to do that and jesus is willing to give of himself now, symbolically, it's spit here, right? But this is part of him. He's actually given the people he's healing, he's given part of himself. He's leaving part of himself with them. He's coming so close that now there's little difference between Jesus and that person because they, they're connected by bodily fluids. I'm sorry to be so graphic, but I think, I think this is what Mark is doing. I think it's supposed to make us think, why is Jesus doing that? He's getting really close. He's getting very intimate. He's coming so close that his presence, his person is right there bringing that life to the, the deaf man. He's touching the ears so he can open the ears so he can now speak and say, be opened, and the person can hear. It's, it's amazing, the level of, of closeness here. And then you have this, the healing of the blind man, and, and this is... Also really strange because typically Jesus says something and person is healed, right? He can do it over distance. You know, you've heard all those stories. This is unusual. Now here's what's happening here. They come to Bethsaida. Some people, again, bring a blind man to him and beg him to touch him. He looks at the man and then he does the, the spit and lays his hand on him and does that. And then he asks, do you see anything? And this is amazing because why is he asking this if he knows his own power, right? Why is he checking if, if it worked in a sense? Now, this is what the man says. I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
which means I'm seeing better now, right? It's better, but I still can't really see. There's a gradual healing. And so Jesus, again, lays his hands on his eyes. He opens his eyes. His sight is restored. And now he can see clearly. What is Mark's point in describing this? He's telling us that sometimes one touch is not enough. Sometimes Jesus needs to come again and again to you. He needs to touch you again and again because there's gradual healing. And every Christian should know that. When you came to Christ and your eyes were opened and you you understood the gospel and you said, now everything makes sense to me, right? I'm a sinner. Jesus is my Savior. He came to die for me. He rose for me. He saves me by his blood, by this great sacrifice. Now I have a new life with God. Hallelujah. Everything is clear now, right? And then the next day you say, I see people, but they're walking and they're kind of like trees. I really don't know what's going on here. How do I deal with my sin? Why is God allowing suffering? What does God mean when he says this in this part of the scriptures? All of a sudden, you have so many questions, and Jesus comes and touches you again and again, and explaining to you, and opening your heart, heart, and opening your eyes to see more and more spiritual truths. That's the Christian experience. Yes, there's the initial, initial touch, but there are more touches to come. So we are healed. Our spiritual senses are restored by his touch, by this intimate, close contact with Jesus that is, produces gradual healing. So if you're struggling with understanding, if you're struggling with accepting a truth, what you need to do is you need to go to Jesus. You need more Jesus. You need more of him. You need him closer to you. you need, yes, you need his spit in your ears to get what he's saying. And don't be discouraged that right now things may look a little hazy to you. Jesus will touch you again and more truth will come. And you will see more and more as you grow until one day everything will be clear. And there will be no no confusion at all. So that's his touch. That's how he restores our spiritual sight. And finally, he's restoring our spiritual sight by his groan. Remember, the second groan was the groan of unbelief. He sighed deeply in his spirit because he saw the Pharisees demanding evidence when the issue was not evidence, but the issue was their heart, their hard hearts that refused to believe. And Jesus says in Mark's account, no sign will be given to you. You don't need any more evidence. But it's interesting that in Matthew's account, Matthew 12, 39 and 40, Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of, do you remember? Jonah. Jonah. He says, you've had all this evidence, and yet there is another piece that's coming. And that piece, that sign, that final sign, if you get that, you'll get everything. And if you reject that, you have nothing. What's the sign of Jonah? Jesus said he was going to die and be in the grave for three days, and he will rise again. Just like Jonah in the belly of the fish. You remember the story. Now, Jesus is saying that on the cross, through my death and resurrection, you will see the hope of your spiritual sight being restored. Something's going to happen on the cross that will release this healing power 
that will allow blind people to see, not just on this kind of local level of one person at a time, physical healing mixed in with spiritual healing, no. There'll be a universal invitation to all those who see the cross, who see the sign of Jonah, who in faith embraced what Jesus does on the cross in the empty tomb. For those people, their faith will be restored. Their sight will be restored. Their hearts will be opened to Jesus. And that's the last groan. In Mark 15, let me read the passage to you. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah, completely spiritually blind. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. First he groaned at the brokenness of sin. Then he groaned at the unbelief of the Pharisees. And now the intensity rises and there's a loud cry, there's a loud groan from the cross because something happened on that cross. What happened? Jesus himself was caught up in the avalanche of sin. He experienced all the effects of sin, all that he was groaning about, all that he was sighing about when he saw the deaf man, he is now experiencing it himself. He, he is in that avalanche being, uh, being driven down the mountain, unable to help. He became blind. There's darkness descending on the earth. He becomes deaf because God is not responding. He cannot hear God's voice. He's crying out to God, but God is not speaking to him. He became lame because he couldn't move. He was fastened to the cross, and he became poor. He lost everything. Jesus lost everything, including his life. And as he was longing for the honey of God's love, as he was longing for the honey of God's presence, all he got was a sponge full of sour wine. Do you see the symbolism here? Do you see what Jesus is actually doing to restore our spiritual sight? He goes to the cross, experiences all the effects of sin, himself becoming blind and deaf and lame and poor. Why? To give us life. So that when he comes out of the grave... Just like Jonah, right, being spit out by the, by, by the fish. When Jesus comes out of the grave, what is he coming out with? He's coming out with life. And he's saying, now I'm going to give you life, and I'm going to restore your spiritual sight, and I'm going to restore your spiritual hearing, I'm going to restore your understanding. So now you will actually see what I've come to do, and you will embrace me, and you will not be offended at me because of the cross. Because of that final sign of Jonah and because of that final groan on the cross. If you are not a believer, I, I want to take you to Jesus. And I'm going to beg when I pray. I'm going to beg that Jesus would touch you. 
that Jesus would touch you, that he would put his fingers in your ears, that he would put his hands on your eyes, that he would take your heart and he would open you up so you can see what he is like. And I pray that you would respond in faith and you would run to him and you would embrace him as the true king and that you will not be offended at him, at his claims of authority, but he actually would embrace him as your king. And if you are a Christian, I want to welcome you to come to this table, the table of the Lord. I want you to to feel his touch. We take communion every week because every week we need Jesus to do something else in our lives because we're still, we're longing for that gradual healing. Jesus, I see things, but I don't see them clearly. So you come to the table and Jesus touches you again and you will see a little more clearly. And as you come to this table, you will hear his groan from the cross. And as you experience his touch and you hear his loud cry from the cross, you can say in faith, just like the crowds, he has done all things well.